Hello, I'm Brad Sherwood, and you're listening to an Improv Nerd on Improv Nerd. Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an Improv Nerd. Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Oh, Jimmy. Hey, everybody, this is Jimmy Crane, and you're listening to another episode, another great episode of Improv Nerd. And our guest today... I'm building the suspense, do you feel it, is Brad Sherwood. You know him as a regular on Whose Line Is It Anyway? He was also on the British version for three seasons. He has been on VH1. He's hosted game shows. He's been on game shows. You've seen him everywhere. We were lucky enough to catch up with him at the Genesee Theater in Waukegan, Illinois, which is about, I'm guessing, 30 miles north of Chicago. Uh, And we caught him right before him and Colin Mockery were doing their two-person improv show, which was part of their Scared Scriptless tour. We talked to Brad about his wonderful confidence. He's got great confidence as an improviser. Of course, we talked about whose line is it anyways, and we talked about a time where he bombed. It's a wonderful story about when he bombed. Uh, It's great. You're really going to enjoy it. Before we get to that, uh, I just uh, want to turn something over. A couple days ago, I did a podcast. Uh, a, a, f- a friend of mine and also part of the Feral Audio family, Matt Dwyer. And Matt is, not only is he very funny as a stand-up, he's one of the few people that make me laugh on Facebook. And it's, it's him and my friend Stu Harris, on a regular basis, make me laugh on their Facebook posts. So whatever you can do, check out those two guys. But Matt is also a great interviewer and somebody that uh, I, I learn from and, and want to emulate more of. And he had me on his show, uh, and I can't remember the name of the podcast. He does two podcasts, but it wasn't the one. The one is Matt Dwyer's Conversations with Matt Dwyer. This one is about um, being a father and stuff like that. And I want to tell you something. Um, I revealed so much about myself, uh, about how I... Um, raised Betsy, how sometimes I get angry at my daughter, Betsy. Uh, Today is a perfect example. Uh, Lauren's got her out uh, because she would not sleep at all today. So she's driving her in the car and Lauren was not happy. And uh, Lauren was really angry. So she put her in the babysit and she's driving her. Uh, I talked about being sexually abused. I talked about politics a little. And I'll tell you something, for the last two days, I've just been in the shame spiral because I've, I really revealed a lot on that episode. And I went into therapy and it's, it's a mixed group. It's male and female. But, but yesterday it was all, except for the therapist who's male, it was all women and me. The two other guys weren't there. And I brought this up. I said, I'm in a shame spiral. I, re- I relieved, the, I, I, re- I, I told these things. And I just feel, I just feel really vulnerable and I feel a lot of shame. Like people are going to think I'm a bad father because I talked about like when Betsy cried, you know, sometimes I would get so mad I'd, I'd want to stick her head through the wall. Or uh, the other day I had this, this great insight about when I was holding her and I'm like, my God, you know, like I could, you know, I, you know, like when I was younger, people would tease you, like scare you and stuff. And so I shared that on the podcast and I'm just like, someone's going to call DCF on me after hearing this. So I brought this to group therapy and everybody's like, no, Jimmy, that's where you need to go. You need to talk about your dark side. And that's, they kept saying, that's the way you shatter your glass ceiling. 
And I'm telling you something, it's very scary. There, and, and someone in my group therapy was like, don't you want to be more like Louis C.K.? That He talks about all these subjects. So I'm terrified and I'm just, I'm filled with shame. And, and, and another person in the, in the group said, you know, that should be your shtick. That should be your stick. You should be the curmudgeon who's filled with shame. And I came home and I told Lauren and she's like, you already do that. So enough about me. Here it is. You're going to love this episode, the Brad Sherwood episode. Enjoy. Brad Sherwood, thank you so much for being our guest on Improv Nerd. My pleasure. Now, I know you started acting when you were eight years old. Yes. All right. Grew up in Chicago. I never knew this. Yes. I was born in Evanston and uh, lived here till I was 10. Lived in the north side, sort of Rogers Park, Evanston area. And uh, yeah, I got started in a summer uh, children's repertory theater that performed down off of, I think, Street was Broadway. I was little at the time. I can't right, remember. Sure. But, but I would go down there and uh, did plays in the summer. And then how did you get exposed to improv? Uh, the first time I saw improv, I, I, I knew I wanted to be an actor since I was eight and mm-hmm. continued to do that through school. I saw a three-man improv group at a, like a, a little restaurant in Ohio where I was going to school uh, at Wright State University in Dayton. And, uh, and you were studying to be an actor. Yes, okay. yes. I was getting my uh, BFA. And they came in and did the show and I hadn't really seen improv before and I was just blown away. I thought, oh my God, that was so funny. I love that. And then really kind of didn't think about it for a while longer. And I was in a comedy troupe in college. But we mostly did sketch. We wrote sketches. And uh, so we didn't do a lot of improv in our show. And then after college, I moved to L.A. And I was working in TV production behind the scenes. And a guy I was working with said, hey, I'm taking an improv workshop called Go For Broke. And uh, you you should come check it out. I think you'd be really good at it. So I went and checked it out and was like, the heavens opened. You know, I, what was it about that? Because that, here you are coming from an acting background. Yeah. What was it like, oh my God? Uh, I, I always liked being funny. As a kid, I was always trying to make all my friends laugh in conversation. So intellectually, I was already working as an improviser in my social world. You know, I'd be talking and listening to what people are saying and, you know, at a table. And if somebody said something that made me think of something funny, I would just sort of blurt it out. So that's the way my brain was already thinking. You know, I grew up watching sitcoms and reading Mad Magazine. So I ate comedy all day long and wanted to be a funny person. And uh, so then when I took this workshop, it was like, oh, there's a structure and an art form to the way my brain thinks already and has been since I realized I liked making people laugh. So it's kind of like I had just gone along with this unknown art form brain process in my head the whole time. I wasn't doing scenes, but I was improvising all of my relationships with friends. And you, you mentioned that you were you were consumed and you ate all this comedy. And I, I, I found something interesting that you thought you think Don Knotts from the Andy Griffith Show was a, a big influence. Art Carney from mm-hmm. the Honeymooners, Tim Conway from the Carol Burnett Show. Uh, all of these guys have played second bananas. What is it you like, uh, and when you improvise, playing second banana sometimes? Uh, I don't really think about whether I'm playing second banana or first banana. I think, especially doing a two-man show with Colin, uh, you're, you're changing banana every ten seconds, depending on your status in the scene. 
You can be the top banana who's running the show, or you can be the second banana who's getting all the laughs. And in our show, we constantly do that all the time. And I've answered those questions about my favorites, like Tim Conway and uh, uh, Don Knotts and Art Carney before. And then I had this realization that my performing partner that I do this show with for 15 years is so much akin to those three guys. In what way? Uh, just he is one of those guys that is funny just in his being. Like when people see him and he's about to do something, they're already laughing. The anticipation of what Don Knotts is going to do or Art Carney is going to do, it's, they do things in a funny way instead of saying funny things. Is that just a gift? Yeah. It's, a, it's an evil gift that I never got, so I had to become very clever. I had to become a smart-alecky wordsmith who had said great, great things with words put in a row. Not like that sentence. But, you know, and improvising music and, and uh, making things rhyme. And so I'm, uh, my brain works at it like it's the New York crossword puzzle. And, you know, Colin is just sort of like Chauncey Gardner in being there. He just is funny. So it's And how do dynamic. you approach um, this show you do with Colin, with it, it's you, you and Colin, mm -hmm. versus when you're doing Whose Line and it's, it's, a, it's a bigger cast? Well, we have to give a lot more responsibility to the audience. And uh, selfishly, we're on stage the whole time, which is great. And we're how long does the show run? Uh, this show, with intermission, probably two hours and ten minutes. Oh, my God. How like do that. you do that? I don't know. We, we, we finished the first act, and it's like an hour and five. We're like, how, how did all, where did the time go? So uh, it's really fun. Um, you know, on the show, Whose Line, all the games have to be within the constraints of three minutes, five minutes, or seven minutes so they can go to commercial and fit four games into an episode. In this show, uh, we can go on as long as we want and then find an out for the scene. We're not afraid to go on into the unknown, and we also can take our time building a scene as we go to get ourselves into trouble. And on whose line? Uh, and I, I, you, you, you shoot tons and tons of, of yeah. uh, games. Then they they boil it down to the ones that they like. Yeah. What usually happens on every ta actually every taping that I've ever done, they shoot about twenty some games, and uh, with the hopes of getting just one good show out of it. But every time I've ever shot it, they've gotten at least two out of that episode, which is why you'll see that we're still wearing the same tie or whatever, and you're like, oh, but I haven't seen this one because he edits it into two or three games. One time, uh, in the old days from an English version show, I got four episodes out of one taping. How do you stay fresh on those long shooting days? How do you stay funny? How does your, because after a while, I'm sure you're just like, oh my God. Uh, I, I, I just love making people laugh and I don't want to suck. I think staying fresh is, is how much you fear sucking, you know? So it's, it's that, that's the lion at your back. Failure and not getting a laugh is far more terrifying and uh, impels you to stay high energy and focus. And then I'm sure there's per, uh, per, uh, per, uh, parameters in terms of doing the stuff for, for a network television show. Certain areas you can't go with because sensors are going to come. How have you been able to, to, to juggle that? Uh, well, we tend to not work very dirty anyway, so that's usually not a problem. In the early onset of the U.S. version, uh, the censors presented the producers with a list of topics and things and, that we can't say. But they didn't want to tell us that. The producers chose to not tell us anywhere where we would be treading into uh, shaky territory because they feared that, like, enfants terribles, we would walk in there and immediately go straight to those things. They trusted us so little 
about being the bratty children and immediately going, oh, if you can't talk about that, boom, that's what we're going to fixate on. Uh, so we would usually stumble on to what we couldn't say. Uh, for example, one time they had me doing a, a B-52s song about uh, ants at a picnic or something. And I did a thing and uh, something about the bugs and all the bugs were doing drugs. And I started saying, and then they stopped and I went, stop tape. And they came out and they said, you, you can't make reference to uh, drugs or drug use. I said, even when it's just bugs doing hypothetical drugs in a uh, rhyme of a song, you know, I wasn't saying, hey, everybody, let's slam heroin. <laughs> I was doing a B-52 song and they were like, no, we can't even mention drugs. So that's how we would find out. I mean, we knew all the swear words you couldn't say, but then there were also topics and shades of things that they would get upset about. But we wouldn't know until we opened that little advent calendar. When you started out, did you think like I could make a living improvising doing short form games? No, no. Uh, when, when I started out, there were no people actually that could say they were employed and making a living at improv. You know, we're still sort of the, the front wave of people that actually can pay their bills doing this. It's, you know, there are millions of stand-ups that make a living, and there's like 20 improvisers that actually do it full-time that aren't, say, in a ske in the sketch show that also does improv. And um, you, you were about the same age, and we uh, uh, started out doing improv at the same time. Yeah. And uh, when I would tell people who I was doing improv, they would say, oh, it's stand-up. How has Whose Line helped people to understand what improv is today? Oh, it, it's, it opened the floodgates of awareness for it. You know, the only people that knew about improv were people that were at a comedy club that the club owner had allowed an improv group to do a 20-minute set, and they were there to see stand-ups. like, what's this? Or they, they were in college, and their group had a group or so on. You know, it's kind of like jazz. You know, I, I think it, somebody, was it Jeff Michalski? Somebody said that uh, improv is the jazz of comedy. And uh, so most people just didn't know about it. After the big boom in the 70s and late 80s, or 80s of stand-up, that was it. That was what everybody knew. So when Whose Line came along, that was, uh, everybody now knows about it. And now it's part of curriculums in theater programs, in, even in elementary schools and high school, the drama department does and teaches improv and they sometimes refer to Whose Line to learn about how games are played and this and that. So now we've had a whole generation of kids that have grown up knowing what improv is. They didn't find out about it in their 20s like I did. They've grown up knowing about it, watching it, and doing it. So I think we're going to have this like super generation of millennial improvisers that are way more facile than we ever were. Um, what are some of the games on the show that you really love playing? I like a lot of the music games because, uh, I mean, I come from sort of a musical background theater, so I'm such a hammy actor in my blood. But also for me, it's the most challenging. When you get good at improv, I think you want to scare yourself. And there's nothing that scares me more than having to sing on key, keep up with the tempo. Sometimes if you're spoofing a type of music, you know, do a good spoof of that or an impersonation of the person. Make it make sense uh, and make it rhyme and continue on. So that's like a lot of plates that you're spinning up here in your brain. Any secrets you can share that, that you use? Nope. I mean, my brain is trying to think of a, a word that I want to rhyme something with that's based on the topic, you know, if it's a doctor, you know, uh, 
the, the word stethoscope pops into my brain, I start singing something, something, ending that first line with hope, and then getting on to stethoscope. So I'm just kind of like choosing words. So the first word comes up, and you're like, okay. Yeah, first word comes up, I throw that to the back of the line, because mm -hmm. that's the germane word for the topic, and I try, and then I start singing a sentence to get to a word that rhymes with stethoscope, and then, so then, I'm the, and then, like, craft whatever the last line is, knowing it's going to end with stethoscope. Now, for me, if I was on the show, I would be like, oh my God, Wayne Brady is, you know, he's phenomenal at that. It's like, I can't compete with Wayne Brady. How, how do you, do, do you learn from Wayne Brady or do you just go, oh, screw it, I'm just going to do the best I can? It, it's, it, well, for us, it's not about competing on the show. Usually he and I are singing together. So we're either two parts of a band when we're doing the, the song styles to the record giveaway thing, or uh, we're two people singing, we're singing a song together. So we want to work together, and I'm listening to him, I'm taking cues off him, depending on if it's an R&B, which way this R&B is going to go, is it going to be sort of a, you know, an up-tempo James Brown, or is it, you know, so stylistically we're working together, and I got to listen to his rhymes and lyrics because I have to check those off the list as I'm in my own brain thinking about what I'm about to sing if he started singing first. We got to take a quick break here and then we'll be right back after this. Um, you were also on the British version. Yep. I think you, uh, what I read was you had auditioned in Los Angeles and you were the only American actor at that time to do it? Uh, the, no, the season... I went to audition for it. They had the auditions here in LA. I was the only uh, person that survived that audition to get on the show. Um, Greg had already been doing the show, Greg, Greg Proops, and Ryan had already been doing the show. So, uh, but from the LA auditions, I was the only one that managed to get through this horrible, vicious chorus line style audition. And what were you doing up to that point? Because I know you were you, you were doing uh, some guest spots on TV mm -hmm. shows. You had a nice arc on L.A. Law. Yeah. Were you also doing short form? Uh, yeah, I was doing uh, short form and long form. Uh, I was in theater sports in Los Angeles. I was also in the touring company of Second City out in Los Angeles. When they had Santa Monica? Yeah, the Santa Monica one at the Mayfair. And I was understudy for Ryan Stiles, which is how I found out about the audition for Who's Line in the first place. I was his understudy. I was in the touring company. So we did a best of sketch show. That's usually what the touring companies do. So we did a bunch of best of from the, all the years of, of uh, uh, Second City on Sunday nights. And, uh, but I understudied for him and for Chris Barnes in the main stage show. And then um, w doing this, w how do you keep learning? How do you keep getting better at this? You keep learning by not falling into a rut. You know, we have some banter in our show that stays the same as far as introducing games, our good more, you know, our our welcome to the show and stuff. But we're constantly trying to find new ways of getting suggestions uh, that takes the pressure off us to become precious about, oh, we have to do dangerous occupation when we play sound effects. You know, we, we want these more obtuse, generic, we, so Colin had the idea to write on uh, index cards these weird, just sort of generic, kind of fill-in-the-blank ways of getting suggestions. And then we have a bunch of them laminated, and we shuffle them up, and before each game, we have them randomly pick one. So now you have one out of ten cards that you could play for that game, and then throwing that generically out to the audience to give you the suggestion, you get quickly out of the rut of being in a short form group that always gets a dangerous occupation for sound effects, and then you'll either get cop or fireman or crocodile wrestler. You know, so 
And if there's you're doing a game, you're like, you know what? I'm bored with this. This is a challenge. Do you guys say, hey, we're gonna throw this out? Oh, we 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 shelf things all the time and scrap it and turn it into you know take part of one game that works and another one and combine them and fuse them. Uh, yeah, we're always trying to innovate, not only to make games better, uh, but to put a new twist on something. So you know, sometimes we'll be like, that game has got something there, but it's not quite right, and we'll just set it aside until. Inspiration strikes us. What short form game? If I said, "Oh, you got to play this," you're like, "I hate this. I'm not going to do it." Scene reverse. Why? Why don't I, you like? I, it? I find myself so busy thinking, and then after, I, if I make a, a logic flaw mistake in it, then I'm like, "Oh," and then I'm thinking about why that didn't work, and then I'm not hearing what happened uh, with the thing that now happened right before that. So that one to me is like, it also, it's kind of. It, I think there are certain games that get in the way of telling a story. And yes, we play the mousetrap game in our show, which absolutely gets in the way what of telling a story. What is the mousetrap for people that haven't seen your show? A uh, mousetrap game we play, and that came from an old playbook uh, when I was in theater sports. I think someone had that idea. But and never was theater sports Johnstone's theater sports? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Johnstone. So there was theater sports, and from that came comedy sports. Mm -hmm. Someone who actually worked with him. Did, did, did Dick Chudnow work with him? I think so. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They, okay. way back. And okay. then he split off and said, I can do this. So it was like McDonald's and Burger King. <laughs> and uh, and I know lots of people from com comedy sports as well. I know a lot of people from Burger King. Yes. Okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> I, I like their chicken sandwiches. Okay. Uh, in fact, Ryan did theater sports up in Vancouver. So mm -hmm. did Colin. Mm -hmm. uh, Wayne did theater sports and SAC Theater down in uh, Orlando. And Greg did theater sports up in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So, you know, five of the the regulars, was it five? Four. Four of the, four of the regulars uh, did theater sports. We were talking about the mousetrap game. Yes, the yeah. mousetrap game. Uh, we place 100 live mousetraps on the floor in sort of a, a taped off area just so they keep them densely packed. And uh, we take off our shoes and socks so we're barefoot doing an improv scene and we put uh, goggles on that are taped off so that we can't see where we're walking. So we're basically trying to do, and we, I think we play alphabet scene uh, for the game so we kind of know when it starts and when it finishes. And uh, we try and do this How about scene. you start with the yeah. I start A, you Yes, know. and we go to Z, except we have, we have to get the audience to get us a starting letter okay. and we go back and around. And uh, that just frames the game that's already stupid and silly because we're barefoot and blindfolded on mousetraps. And then we try and do a natural scene, which usually devolves into us trying to ambush each other with mousetraps and all that. So that, that, is, that is kind of the most uh, predictable and non-improvised thing that we do in our show. We do it as the closer uh, because uh, audiences just love it. It right. makes them giggle like they're little kids. It kind of reminds me of uh, the way kids used to giggle when they went to see a Harlem Globetrotters game, you know, with a bucket and a confetti. It's just like a silly little moment that's a nice palate cleanser at the end of the show for goofiness. I was going to say you did it because it takes a while to set up the, the mi 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 mice trap yeah. and you have to clear it out. You guys play it in, in cities across the country. Mm -hmm. um, I would imagine, uh, so do you, how do you do afterwards, you do a show, do you give each other notes, do you, how, how, do you, how do you break down what you just did? We never give each other notes. We, uh, at most we would be like, oh, that would have been so much better if in the future when we do that game, uh, we, and we just sort of apply standard rules. We gotta keep moving the story forward. Sometimes if we get on 
our hands on our hips, standing on our heels, and just being clever on stage, it's it, you immediately get to the now what you know. What's your brain? So keep active, go to your environment, all that stuff. So we're constantly having to remind ourselves when if a scene is like, oh, that just could have been so much better, and just different ways to tweak it uh, to attack a scene. There are certain types of games and scenes that we do that are better served by us being in slightly more heightened crisis situation, I guess, no matter what that is, just that we treat something with gravitas. Heighten the emotion. Yes, well just, yeah, like that it's really important, whatever our goal is, to make that high stakes, even if it's not high stakes, because that com that propels the scene. So now, will you have a ritual before the show? You will say, okay, you know what? The last time we did this, we were a little low energy. Let's pick this up, or no, we never talk about that. Uh, only the only time we'll really talk about the show before the show is if we have a new game that we've just either implemented or started. We actually we tried something last night for the first time uh, that we're now going to try again a slightly different way tonight. How'd it go? Uh, it went great. It's actually New Choice, the game New Choice, uh, which. Um, I don't know if you know how that game is played. No, can you? Yeah, new choices usually have a caller, and two of us or however many are in a scene. And if I say something and I go, "Oh, I uh, have to go take my car in to get my transmission fixed," new choice. Oh, I have to take my bobsled in to have the runners rewaxed. New choice. Uh, I and have then to you take have to justify. Parasail. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to keep going with a new option until the caller doesn't new choice me, and then. The, then we take the scene from there. So now I have a hang glider that we're going off. And he goes, oh, great. Well, that's good because there's a hurricane coming. So we'll be and getting great. Choice. New choice. Oh, well, the cliffs over there have a great up breeze from the ocean. New choice. Yes. Uh, I can turn on a wind machine and see if you can hover in it. You know. So, And then he goes, great, get the wind machine. So <laughs> you continue. I actually, I came up with that game when I used to teach at theater sports as a way to get new improvisers to realize that at every single moment of an improv scene, there are an infinite number of ways to go because new improvisers are always going, I don't know what to say here. And new choice reinforces with them, there was that first idea you had, there's also a dormant second idea, super sub-dormant third, and an infinite number down there that could be where the scene goes. So don't feel like you're looking for the only door that's going to propel the scene forward. And I know as a teacher of improv, sometimes you'll say, you know, give notes at the end. They're like, oh, was that the only choice? Or, you know, like they yeah. look at it like that is the only choice. Yeah. It's hard because generally students of improv start off by going to a bunch of improv shows and watching it. They fall in love with it because it's so funny. And then they, they sort of have this, that person is so funny that they are a genius and they chose the right thing to make that scene perfect. Yeah. And really they just chose the thing that popped into their head and the magic of improv and their commitment and whatever happened after that made that work and perfect and genius. Were you a natural when you started out or did you yes. suck? Okay. No, great, I great. did I never ever sucked. I read that in my notes. Yeah, I did my research. Nothing came up. No, I was like, I didn't know what to I, I didn't know what to play in the band and then the heavens opened and someone handed me improv which is like the bassoon that no one plays and I was like the bassoon Eddie Van Halen right away. I was like best in the class and it was like it already made sense to me. Every rule he told me I was like, "Oh, okay. Agreement no problem with that." Yeah, no. Yeah. Listening no problem with that. Sorry. Li okay. All right. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what have you learned working with Colin? 
uh, I, I've learned that he can't be stumped. Like, because I go out there try to stump him. Well, yes, I yeah, I equate uh, an imp- a two man improv show or just when you're on stage with someone that an improv scene is kind of like two kids uh, building a sandcastle together while they're having a snowball fight. Because it's fun and adversarial to to set traps for the other person to pimp them into trouble, uh-huh. so you can so the audience can see their brain spin and how are they going to get out of this. Mm-hmm. But you're also creating a scene together, so it's collaborative. Right. So it, it's, how do you avoid? Because I know I've improvised for such a long time, and you you work with the same pr- people. Sometimes you get into the same. It's almost like deja vu in improv. Like, oh, haven't we done this scene before, Colin? Mm-hmm. How, how do you how do you break that? Uh, well, you just. If you become aware of it, that's already a problem because now you're outside the scene directing and going, "Oh wow, we're commenting, blah 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 blah." blah. Yeah. So, uh, but that's part of what we do with trying to find new ways of uh, tweaking suggestions and trying to launch. Even if you've done Postman before, launching off in a totally different direction. Postman being a game. No, Postman just being the character, or okay, the occupation okay, okay. that you got. All right. From, yeah. Okay. I'm a little slow. Sometimes. But tonight we're going to create a game called Postman. Okay, yeah. great. Uh, I, hope it, I hope it delivers. Yeah. Oh, mm. Okay. Uh, how, you've been doing it for so long. How do you st- still find fun? What is still fun for you and, and, and new about doing this? Well, I think it's fun for one thing. I think he and I are both, uh, you know, there's sort of this stage in our bloods. You know, we, we both grew up doing it. And I've done it forever. And I'm a ham. I like to make people laugh. So there's that... I think there's a certain addiction to making people laugh. Once you've done it for a long time and you get good at it, you like doing that. And it's like the coolest gift to give to someone is to make them laugh. It makes them feel good, it's good for their health, and then they reward you and your ego with this laughter. But what about the nights where you don't make people laugh? Or you feel you don't make people laugh? I'm waiting for that to happen. Our show is so funny and so consistent. You've never had a bad show with this? Not this. We've had bad corporates. We've had okay. bad corporates. Tell me about a bad some, corporate. Give me a bad some, corporate. Okay. We, uh, I think it was, was it for Yahoo or Google? We, it was a dot-com search engine something or other. I can't remember. And we did this show, and we thought, oh, these are all going to be young, hip, with it, pop-culturally astute audience members. And it was like pulling teeth. We thought they'd all been hit with tranquilizer darts. It was the only time during our corporates, certainly, uh, that we were just like, oh my God, this is just brutal. Like, trying to hold their attention. It was, yeah. Why don't you think in this show that you've ever done a bad show? What is it that makes this show success? We've had scenes that, like a a game that'll go wrong, but but, uh, I think we both trust our own uh, abilities and we, you know, implicitly trust each other. You know, I know he's going to make something funny if for some reason something I did didn't quite pan out. Uh, so the trust of ourselves makes us play with a confidence that isn't panicked. Mm-hmm. We just, we go out there with adrenaline and energy because we're in front of an audience and we like to perform. But we never are going out there like, oh God, I hope this is fun. We never would doubt that. I know a lot of people play scared. We play excited and hyper. Um, how much is confidence important to being successful as as a comedian or as an improviser? I think uh, very 
important because you have to have a certain bravado to go out on a stage and say, something in my mind is going to entertain you this evening and I don't know what it is, but I am so darn funny and so darn talented that I will figure out a way to justify the money you paid tonight. You know, it's the old snake oil salesman. It's like you're a total huckster. You sold them a bill of goods and now you actually have to turn it into a comedy show. So you should be pretty confident. If you're a neurotic, scared, I'm sometimes not funny kind of person, then it's like, it's torture. That's kind of like uh, S&M to your, your psyche. That is my life. That oh, is my there life. You are. So I just want to, how have you been able to develop your, your confidence? Uh, just doing it. I mean, because I started out pretty naturally good at it, because I had grown up basically improvising in my own brain to make people laugh, I never doubted. I, I had an entire lifetime of, in all situations, making people laugh. So it was like, that's not going to dry up anytime soon. So, uh, yeah, that, that I think, the, and then just doing thousands and thousands of shows, you know, for free when I was in theater sports and, you know, and then getting paid for it on the road. Do you remember a time where you bombed? Were you really? Oh, yes. Yes, actually, uh, and it involves uh, Colin and Ryan. Uh, it, for a while, there was all different jam places uh, in L.A., and there was a place called Upfront. Yeah, with Jeff Michalski yeah, yes, and yes. Uh, Jane Morris. Yes, that was so they would have Harold Santa Monica. Yes, yeah. they would have Harold Knights, and everybody from Second City, generation after generation, from East Coast you know, to West Coast, would, would show up, and we'd all split up into groups of you know, however many, four groups of however many showed up, and do heralds, four in a row. That's for a true improv junkie. If you don't know improv, boy, you walk into that, it's like a cult. What is this? So, uh, but we also did a couple of shows ourselves as a three-person thing. It was kind of like Transformers, which was a group out of L.A. Uh, they sort of would start a scene, and then they would do the thing, and then when it started to slow down or they found a nice button ending, then someone else would like walk through the other two and create a thing. Same and they would transform. They yeah. would just make so these it would transform into something else. Right. Uh, the Transformers did it by they would be doing something in a physical. scene and they would do a physical repetition until someone then grabbed that and went with it. But we sort of just did the brain version of that, and it was you know we had some success with that. So we went to the comedy store in L.A. and it was like an improv like not showcase night, but it was all these different improv groups that had gotten together and. Uh, I guess uh, Mitzi Shore decided, hey, let's have a Sunday night thing that where all the improv groups will come and they'll each do a little set and they'll bring all of their friends. And they'll drink. Yes, <laughs> they'll drink, they'll bring all their friends, so it'll be the friends of like 10 different improv groups from around the city. So that was like, oh, that would be genius. So there was like a group called Mice, and then there was us, and then there was uh, some maybe Groundlings people. And, and uh, so we get there, and the only people in the theater are other improvisers. So first off, death. Right. <laughs> you, know? you just walked into a wake. Yes, 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 yes. They're all just a Judy. No one right. la no improvisers really laugh. Right, right. So, there's a lot of judgment going on. Well, there's judgment and or jealousy and okay. or they're, if it's good, they're absorbing it and going, what makes that funny? You're, they're right. analyzing it, tearing it apart and going, oh, that's great, okay, oh, he did this. Yeah, so you're not going to get much right. out of this crowd. So we went and we did this show and we had like 15 minutes to do it and it's like, and every other group before us had had the same thing. So we're like the fourth Christian with our sword to walk out into the Colosseum and be mauled by the silent lion. 
And so we knew it was coming, and we did it, and and I think we were sort of near the end because we were all on Who's Line, and you know, so there was a heightened anticipation of, oh, this is one of the main acts. And uh, it was brutal, and we all got off stage, went backstage, went off to the sidewalk, didn't talk about the show, like went in three different directions, and didn't see each other for like two or three weeks when we went to a Herald night, and was like, oh God, that was awful. <laughs> yeah, it was. What do you learn from something like that? Uh, you learn a couple of things that uh, no matter what type of comedy it is, improv or stand-up or, or theater even, you still have to have certain ingredients of theater and, an, and a relationship with your audience that has to be there for the magic to happen. You can't, it just can't be in an inert room that has no energy. You have to have people that have wanted to come see something. You know, that paid money and, are and have an excitement and anticipation of a comedy show. There was no one there. These were all people that just wanted to get up there for their own little moment. But Brad, if you go in there and you can be able to read the room, is there any, and you see it's a dead crowd, is there any way you can change it or adjust it with style of performance or energy? Uh, I think you're constantly trying to take the temperature of the audience to try and figure out what makes them laugh. You know, in, in the first part of a show, you're kind of like, are these people physical people? You, 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 Meaning if you do physical humor, you yeah, get a response. Yeah, yes. Are they more cerebral? Yes, and you know, and I like the audience that is completely well-rounded. Right. If I make an obtuse 70s television joke, I want like five 55-year-olds in the back to laugh hysterically, right. and that's all I'm expecting out right. of that laugh. You know, so, but uh, we have the luxury, I think Colin and I in this show, of uh, people are excited to come see us. And they have an anticipation and they know that we're goofy. So it's kind of different than, say, you know, a crowd at a comedy club who's just going to see whatever comic is there. They have no expectations and they have their arms crossed and they're like, make me laugh, stand up. You know, people are here, oh, we're going to see Colin and Brett. So they're on our side. And there's a, there's a relationship between the audience and improvisers, if the improvisers are doing it right. Uh, that is totally different than the relationship between a stand-up. Stand-ups have to prove it because they have written this stuff, they know it's funny, and improvisers, and they say, I'm going to stand here and, and I'm going to make you laugh because I'm a stand-up. Improvisers say, come on, let's go on this journey together. We're going to collaborate. Give me your ideas, good or bad, and I'm going to do this. And then the audience has an expectation, sort of like it's a magic trick. You're doing an intellectual magic trick. You're creating something out of nothing with their seemingly obtuse idea. So they are vest in, you know, they're vested in it in a way that no, you know, no one in a stand-up show is. We've got to wrap this up and okay. I want to thank you so much for My your pleasure. time. We, we asked the same question to our guests and that, that, uh, to end the podcast and that, that is what piece of advice would you give to an improviser starting out today? Uh, wow. You know, listen on stage to everything that your partner is saying because that is the only thing that the audience has heard. They're not hearing all the voices in your head that is coming up with something completely unrelated to what they just said that you think is really funny. So when you think you say that and it's awesome, they're going, why did he say that? That was completely unrelated to what was just said. So all of your gold is going to be based on what that person just said to you. So that should be the spark of inspiration for the things that you say. Well, so how do I do that if you say something and I have this idea in my head? You have to surrender that idea. So get Always. rid of it? Yeah, if that, if, if, if that is an organic idea that popped out of what's happening as opposed to just something you have in your back pocket that's a plumber joke, 
You know, that's what a lot of people do. They go on stage with their, like, oh, we got plumber. Oh, I've got plumber's crack jokes. Oh, right. oh, oh, fix your leaky pipe. No, you know, that, you can use those when you're making a song. You know, then you can do all the standard goofy puns and stuff. But uh, you should be listening because that person may say something that is a little off kilter or they might stumble on a word or say something wrong. That is things that you can exploit because when you exploit that they said a word wrong on stage, the whole audience just heard that word and said in their brain said, did you just say that wrong? So if you say, is this, uh, are you having a stroke? What's wrong with your lip? You just said there. Now they go, ah, oh, yes, I heard that too. You see, as opposed to you going off on something that was. So up is your here. mind completely blank if Colin comes out and gives a line? It's completely blank until you hear what he says. I think it's both. Okay. I, I, I think you can you can split your brain and go. Part of you is always on stage going, let's make this work. Right. Come right. on, everybody. We don't right. have a script. Right. You know. There's all the guys pulling the levers inside right, right, my brain. Right. I, I sometimes have the uh, image of my brain, especially when I'm composing songs, but it's always, uh, I have a guy on one of those big giant uh, bookshelves in a library with a wheeling ladder, and like he says, oh, something about a, a, a medical profession, and my brain goes, oh, medical references, climb, 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 slide, and right before my words slip out, it's, uh, oh, uh, hydroencephalopathy, you know, and then I get to the word, right, as, so, and that's kind of how I work, just, I don't know where it's going to go, I try not to have the agenda, because I trust that I'm going to make it work, and I know I'm verbose enough that I'll somehow dig my way out of mistakes as well. Brad Sherwood, thank you so much for being our guest on this episode of Improv Nerd. My pleasure. And there you have it. Another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. Just like that. And I love that story that Brad told about bombing. And a little teaser for next week, we'll have Colin Mockery, and he's going to give you his version of that bombing story. I want to thank our guest, Brad Sherwin. I also would like to thank uh, the Genesee Theater in Waukegan, Illinois. And I'd like to thank Dan Schiffmacher, my producer, Sam Bowers, uh, my director, and uh, Joe Pizanzio. I got it right. I can't believe it. Who also came out uh, and taped this episode. So we're going to have clips from this. So look for that on our YouTube channel. Uh, also, if you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning improv classes, workshops, and intensives called The Art of Slow Comedy, please go to my website, jimmycorain.com. You can also uh, sign up for my Improv Nerd blog. Also, we are taking over social media. You've known this for a long time, five years, I believe. Uh, so go to our Facebook page, Improv Nerd, and like us because it helps with my low self-esteem. Follow us at Twitter at Improv underscore Nerd, and then the YouTube channel I just mentioned, which is Improv Nerd Podcast, all one word, and you'll see clips from the live shows. Or when we did with Brad and Colin, we will you will see uh, the actual interviews, clips for the actual interviews. Uh, we are lucky to be part of this growing, it's just booming, this podcast collective called feralaudio.com. So check out all the great podcasts, including the number one comedy podcast, My Favorite Murder. I don't know why I have to plug that because it's number one, but it's the first one that came to my mind, and it's a great podcast. And they have all sorts of great, hilarious podcasts on there. So check that out. And of course, I want to thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Hello. 
I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Young. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. (laughs) That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons... It's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. He's Like, I mean, if yeah. you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> 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 That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my a, girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my <laughs> 